This is an MIT Press Journals podcast. This is Bill Fowler with the New England Quarterly. Uh, NEQ is one of America's oldest scholarly journals, and it focuses on the New England history and culture from the very beginning of New England to the present moment. And today, I'm here with a New England Quarterly author, David Nomick, who has done a fascinating article, David, quite fascinating in the current December issue, having to do with Native Americans in Connecticut, having to do with the Civil War, race, ethnicity. I think you really touch a number of different topics, which I found most, most interesting. And I'd like to begin by simply asking you, how did you come upon this topic? Frankly, I've always been interested in the American Civil War. That's one of, uh, uh, one of the topics I've just come to research over the years, come to grow and love. Uh, while I was doing undergraduate work at UConn, uh, much of my studies were also involved in public history, museum studies. I managed to take an internship at the Mashantucket Pequot Museum um, in southeastern Connecticut. And I, I was aware of uh, Native presence in southern New England, but um, at that point in my career, I haven't really focusing on it much. It was, it was a new experience. And uh, I was lucky enough to work with a senior researcher at the time, Toby uh, Glaza, and understanding my interest in the Civil War, he shows me uh, that wonderful image of Amasa Lawrence, who's... Oh, yes, yes, yes. That's, that's part of the journal. It's a wonderful photograph. Oh, yeah. I, I thank the Pequot Museum for allowing us to use it. It's, uh, it's, it's fascinating on a number of levels. For me, I thought it was just very interesting knowing that this man was an Indian, Ashantucket Pequot, and served in the American Civil War, this topic I knew and loved. Uh, when I found out what regiment, 29th Connecticut Volunteers, immediately understood that was a regiment of color. And up until that point, I, I always considered it a, a, a unit just fully manned with African Americans and uh, white officers. Now, how well identified were Native Americans or Indians in the Civil War? I noticed in your article you used census material uh, quite extensively. And I was struck by the uncertainty and the kind of the cloudedness of census material. And I thought you used a great deal of imagination probing through that information to get at the real essence of the story. And, and if you could talk about that and also the database. Uh, you mentioned in one of your footnotes, I always read the footnotes, uh, this remarkable database that's been developed. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I have to say... Uh, Mashantucket Pequot Museum, the research department, which is uh, one of the many uh, departments of the museum, along with archaeology and information resources, where uh, we collect any and all data we can on Native American peoples in North America, but specifically we focus on local history, and that of not only the Mashantucket tribe, but the other uh, tribal nations of southern New England. Uh, this database, it, it, basically the, the issue we always dealt with were these records were so numerous and diverse in nature, you name it, court records, vital records, uh, uh, maritime records, humans protection papers, military records. It, it's, it's hard to keep track of these populations, of these, this, this community, very mobile, uh, not always understood by these Euro-American record keepers. We see this diverse nature of uh, descriptions, as, as I wrote about, ranging from anything from black to colored to yellow to... Indian, it's, it was more or less, it, it seems to be a, a visual description of the record keeper at the time. Um, we have plenty of modern examples and examples of the late 
19th century of Native peoples describing how they seek to be described as such Indian in the record, but the record keeper doesn't allow that and inserts their own description of race, white, color, whatnot. That's an intriguing thing. I mean, mm -hmm. obviously historians are always victims of record keepers. Those of us who work from documents depend upon those who created the documents. And I was intrigued, as you, the point that you make in your essay, one of the many very good points, is that in many ways these record keepers made Native Americans disappear. They simply disappear. And I was struck by uh, Crevacore's uh, comment when he was traveling through America in the, in the late uh, 18th century, when he says, and you quote him here, what is become of those numerous tribes which formerly inhabited the extensive shores of the Great Bay of Massachusetts? And of course, the implication being that they are no longer with us. Uh, that was one of the most fascinating aspects of this research, that it only became more clear the longer I worked at the Pequot Museum Research Department Archaeology, the nature of how uh, you know these perceptions of race changed incredibly from the Revolution to the period of the Civil War and, and beyond, and what a difficult just nature of research it is for many historians to get their, their hands around. Uh, that particular quote was fascinating. It was brought to my attention by uh, the, the current senior researcher at the Pequot Museum, Jason Mancini, who's done an incredible amount of work on uh, Indians in the maritime world, uh, relying on the Siemens Protection uh, Papers, uh, part of the customs records, uh, namely Port of New London. And it's just incredible. Uh, we, we literally have done studies tracking particular individuals. Masa Lawrence is one. Uh, recently, not, uh, the Pequot Museum hosted an exhibit uh, on race. Uh, that was around for a period of uh, uh, some odd months last year. And one of our case studies was Amasa Lawrence, and using that image, we tracked uh, Mr. Lawrence through the historical record and kept track of how arbitrarily he'd been described over the years. Not only uh, this, he's been self-identified by signing tribal petitions, but by the record keepers. You can see uh, descriptions ranging from black, Negro, part white, part Negro, some odd amount of Indian blood as you go through the years from the 18-teens to the 1870s. Chief of the Pequots, as on that uh, image of Masa Lawrence. Uh, this, this is a material we've worked on quite a bit. Back to the database, uh, all these records we find all over the place, it's just been, uh, the system's been so simple it works, that is, we have created an access database where we cite these records. Uh, now, what records are you citing? Though? Every record we can get our hands on that <laughs> describes an individual. Uh, they can be military records, uh, series known as the Indian Papers and the Connecticut Court Records, uh, vital records, death, um, you know, cemetery inscriptions, you name it. If it has a description of race and an individual, not even a description of race, but somebody that we know of, part of the community, we enter it into this database. You can sort it any which way. We can, it, all of a sudden, it just becomes very clear, these communities that begin to emerge based on surname, based on town, county, uh, record group. You can tease out French and Indian war veterans. It's, uh, it's so simple it works, and it's been so very useful to our, not only ourselves, but other researchers and scholars that have come to visit, and it's been extremely helpful in this research. And this, of course, has managed you and, and other scholars to see the continuous presence of Native peoples, uh, that they have not disappeared, they are not disappearing, they've been persistently present in our culture and have had a dramatic influence on that culture. I was uh, I'm somewhat amused, if that's the right word, about the historian you cite, John DeForest, uh, Connecticut local historian, who asserts, of course, that there are no Native Americans 
and then ends up serving in a Civil War regiment in which there are Native Americans from Connecticut. And it seems that Mr. DeForest didn't look very far. I find it absolutely in incredible. Uh, DeForest is yeah, absolutely and well known in, in Connecticut history and anybody that speaks of uh, or, or researches uh, Native communities uh, throughout the area. Uh, th it's just a uh, it's just a common perception of, of the mid 19th century, especially from the 1830s onwards. And I, as I write about this idea of post-revolutionary war with this changing nature of community and this very mobile nature and the Connecticut, New England, North American Indian not exactly fitting this visual description, this idea of what it means to be Indian. Uh, the forest is relying on reservation populations. He's relying on court records and not actually, apparently, uh, from what I see, actually trying to visit or speak to many of the individuals themselves. Uh, it, it, I wouldn't think he'd have to go too far in the town of Hampton to come across the Vickers in the 1850s if he really wanted to meet some native peoples of Nipmuc descent or native descent living in the area. But to him and others, they may have been simply considered men of color or or whatnot. And uh, personally, I think it has a lot to do with also uh, pure and simple uh, skin tone and how dark one is and just the nature of the uh, communities and marriage and interaction from 1630s to the 1860s, uh, Indian populations, people self-identified as native just to their, I think the further away you move from their European, their communities, the town of Hampton, town of Groton, New London, those who know these peoples, Indian, the farther you, you get away, people not familiar with the community see these people uh, of native descent and visually consider them just simply men of color by the 18-teens onward. You have obviously dug very deeply in the archives. I'm wondering in the course of your work, particularly because of where you work, and, and you might want to say something about that, have you had an opportunity to talk to any descendants of these men who served? Yeah, um, many descendants of, of these native veterans are still in the local area today, and I, I work with a number at the, the Pequot Museum. Uh, I have to definitely... Um, speak a bit more of the nature of the research department. I work alongside uh, a number of fantastic people, uh, two of the senior researchers in the department, Jason Mancini, who I, I say in the article is, is work on maritime, uh, natives of the maritime world, and uh, she's a race and ethnicity, or just uh, just wonderful addition to the literature, and uh, Deborah Jones, uh, a tribal member of Meshantuka Pequot, who's also a skilled researcher, genealogist. Uh, we all work together on these topics, and we have. It's nice to work with such a diverse uh, people with a diverse background with many various interests. Uh, my interest in terms of this topic, military history, I, I followed at Tufts, continued at the Pequot Museum. Uh, others are interested in genealogy. I already mentioned uh, maritime matters. It's it's great. We are able to cover a lot of seemingly different topics with many common threads, and it's just it's it's fantastic in terms of. Uh, ancestors or descendants of these these veterans, uh, the, the first panel, the second page of the article, uh, William Cogswell, uh, I was just stunned when uh, my coworker Trudy Lamb-Richmond, director of uh, the education department at the Pequot Museum, and a descendant of, of Mr. Cogswell showed me this image. It's, it's just incredible any today in general when people I, I find still have these links to their past and their ancestors, especially in the Civil War. I'm a descendant of a Civil War veteran as, as well, served in the 26th Connecticut Volunteer Infantry. 
I uh, was also at the Battle of Port Hudson with the 76th uh, United States Colored Infantry, who I write about with the Vickers served in. And it, it's just it, it's just interesting to, to see these mementos of that period that still survive today. So she shows me this image, uh, which is incredible on, on two accounts. For one, it's, it's a Scattercoke uh, tribal member, William Cogswell, well-known in his community of North Cornwell at the time, known to be Indian, uh, known to be Scattercoke, described in the... Uh, records as mulatto, as I mentioned, and likely considered uh, most parts of Connecticut, if he traveled, a man of color of the time period. We have this image of a Connecticut Indian in uniform, and he's not any uniform, the uniform of second lieutenant of the second Connecticut Heavy Volunteer Infantry. Uh, sash, bell, frock coat, it, it's absolutely incredible. Uh, I've met a number of people like Trudy who uh, are descendants of these these men who fought in these regiments. And I thought it was also fascinating to. that moving between regiments, mm -hmm. uh, that some of these men uh, were in white regiments, mm -hmm. Connecticut white regiments, and then transferred to the 29th or 30th Colored Infantry uh, and became non-commissioned officers in those uh, regiments. So there seems to have been, a, on one hand, a, a very strong racial division, but then, on the other hand, this uh, moving between these regiments, I found rather odd. I found it odd. I found it fascinating. It was almost a catalyst that convinced me to really rework sections of uh, my, my thesis at Tufts, which was on these regiments of Connecticut and Rhode Island, into this journal article. I was working at the Nipmuc Tribal Archives with a, a, a tribal member and ethno-historian archaeologist, Ray Gould, and she showed me their phenomenal archives organized by wars. So I tried to avoid looking too much into the revolution and where else and focus on the Civil War, and I came across this this account of the Vickers family. Um, uh, they are men of Indian descent. Uh, they aren't, uh, uh, I, I do not believe they are um, considered tribal members, but they were, they were as part of this research um, that I, I believe more needs to be known about this family in Hampton. But they're certainly Indian men, and to see that they served in both uh, the 12th Connecticut Volunteer Infantry, you can call it a white regiment, regiment uh, excluding uh, men of color, but these men of color serve in it. And then when the 76th comes along, they are able to resign as privates in the 12th and sign up, as you said, non-commissioned. Sergeants, first sergeants, corporals in the 76th, a unit that you would consider black, African-American, yet these Native men considered men of color can serve, you know, in both capacities. I'm sure there's more than these three instances out there, and I just uh, can't wait for the the time to dive into it a bit further. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. I think you've discovered a, an archive and a method, a method of looking at these archives that reveals these connections that historians simply have not looked at before. It's 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 difficult. It's a community method. This is what uh, Jason uh, Mancini, Deborah Jones, our other interns and consultants that work with us at the museum. This is how we do the work. It's, it's, you, you can't really do it any other way, I, I find. That's why it is difficult to, to tag these, uh, to, to bring these uh, communities to light in the historic records. They've been overlooked because you need to understand the community. Once you start working uh, almost with, with uh, these different records, these genealogical records in a sense, working uh, in this database format and start to recognize names as you look at military rosters, be it the 29th or the 
8th Connecticut and you notice Babcock and Mark D and you start to then cross-reference that with records such as census records, vital records, this is person do, do, that has signed up or is credited to the town of Old Mystic truly from that area. Is that the same Mark Babcock that is appearing on tribal records? And using, or is this the same Rensselaer Babcock appearing in the town for records uh, labeled as Indian, describes his mother? Once you start cross-referencing in, in this way, shape, and form, relying on this community method, it really starts to bring these rosters and, and this, uh, this data to life in a whole different way. You know, no discussion of uh, the service of African Americans and Native Americans in the Civil War would be complete without some reference to what I think is arguably the most famous of the black regiments, and that would be the 54th Massachusetts. And of all the things that, that your article revealed to me, and I'm sure to many, many readers, when I got to the very end of the article, uh, it was almost stunning, uh, stunning, uh, the information you had about the 54th Regiment, and in particular, of course, about uh, one, of the, one of this country's most famous, if not the most famous, Civil War Memorial, the St. Gaudens Memorial to Robert Gould Shaw in the 54th Massachusetts. And I would wonder if you would just explain to our listeners what you did, in fact, discover about the 54th and about that... St. Gaudens Memorial? Uh, well, what I bring to light, uh, didn't necessarily discover because it's been known in the community in Worcester, in the Worcester Historical Society, people like Ed Hood over at Sturbridge Village, long ago that, that one of the musicians, the drummer boys of the 54th Massachusetts, Alexander Johnson, was in fact of Nipmuc descent. I mean, uh, excuse me, Narragansett descent. Uh, he self-identifies, which is one of the hardest aspects of this research, I mean, okay, somebody can be of native descent, but do they consider themselves part of that community? I mean, I think the example, not to go off subject of, say, Paul Cuffey, who is of native descent, um, notably Pequot, uh, among others, an African-American, uh, pioneers the colonization movement in a, in a sense of, of African-Americans to back to Africa. He identified more as an African-American. Alexander Johnson identifies in documents as an Narragansett Indian. Uh, especially on his mother's side. His wife is Narragansett Indian. Uh, both their mothers and fathers, Narragansetts. And notably, his wife has ties to the Nipmuc community I write about. He, he, she lists her, on her grandparents' side, surnames such as Vickers, we discussed, and Hemingway and Curlis, which are known in that community to have ties to the Nipmuc. So these people are firmly entrenched, I, I feel, in the Native community. He is a mariner from New Bedford, signs up at the age of 16, and interesting is is interviewed more than once by the Worcester uh, local newspaper, the Telegram, I want to say. And uh, I, I also think it's fascinating that he mentions that he's been playing a drum or beating on a drum from the the day he was, you know, able to hold one. And it's 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 I think that's has some interesting. You, you could discuss that in a cultural context as well. I think it's pretty fascinating. Well, every time I go by that monument, and I do quite often. Uh, I look at it in a very different way now uh, after having read your essay. It just makes the monument, in some ways, even more moving. I, I'd say so. I, I've, as soon as I learned of this tie with, with Johnson, and, and of course, yes, one of the most famous regiments, thanks to glory, fame, uh, it was another motivator to write this article to bring to light some other regiments other than the 54th, frankly, uh, the 29th Connecticut, the 30th Connecticut, the 14th 
Rhode Island Heavy Artillery, not to mention these Native Guard units that started life as Confederate regiments. A lot of people don't you know, realize or recognize the African-American soldiers of the Confederacy. That's a whole other uh, fascinating aspect of research. Uh, I just like these stories of the Civil War, which have not been told, and it's such a rich, diverse uh, period of American history, and it has been written consistently about from the, that period till present. I just think there's a whole new generation and era of stories to be told by looking at this uh, community approach and these other uh, people, individuals, the different uh, racial, ethnic groups that serve in the conflict. I also wanted to, as I write about, bring across this idea of these regiments as regiments of color. Not frankly, I've, uh, uh, exclusively African-American. We, I described the Hawaiian man, the Asian man, uh, people from Spain, uh, Portugal, from other native tribes outside of the United States. Uh, there's even uh, people uh, from the Caribbean, from Jamaica, that are serving in these regiments who aren't American citizens. Uh, Connecticut recruiters, New England recruiters, recruiters across the country are going all over the place trying to find uh, men to serve as part of their state's quota. You see all these, these people from the docks in New York, uh, recruits from uh, outside the state of Connecticut serving for towns uh, who are just sending recruiters out. Frankly, every individual that they can recruit to serve in these colored regiments, it's one la less of their townspeople who have to serve on behalf of their town. Uh, I, I just think that's uh, this, this topic of Native Americans, people of color in the Civil War can be discussed on so many levels. I just, it, it's endless. And it's, well, it certainly also helps us to understand and better appreciate our own modern period, helping to identify cultural persistence of Native peoples. Uh, I think it's really quite a remarkable contribution that you've made. Let me ask you something. <clears throat> Having uh, mined this information, and I guess gathered it as well, so what's next? Uh, so what's next? Uh, there's always... If I could pursue another topic uh, or along this lines, I would definitely expand it into 54th, 55th Mass, 5th Mass Cav, all colored units. I found um, a number of uh, men of Nipmuc descent uh, that are uh, known within the Nipmuc tribal community that have served as well as Narragansetts. I think it's, I'd be surprised if I see any Mohegan or Pequot serving in those Massachusetts units, but the Massachusetts tribes are Mashpee certainly represented in those regiments and the Union Navy as well. This can repeat, be repeated, uh, uh, expanded upon in, in most of the southern New England states, and I really wish I could uh, follow that up further. The 14th Rhode Island Heavy Artillery is a fascinating unit, uh, which I devoted a chapter to in my uh, uh, thesis at uh, Tufts University, and I, and, you know, that might be another future article. Uh, but at the Pequot Museum, we're also uh, working uh, alongside the National Park Service to receive the grant for the from the American Battlefield Protection Program, and I am uh, working as the lead researcher on that project, uh, identifying uh, battlefields of the Pequot War, 1636 to 38, in southern New England. And we have sites in uh, Grant, Connecticut, Fairfield, Connecticut, Old Saybrook, Block Island, and uh, even up in upstate New York that we're um, considering uh, surveying. We're doing additional historical research into, and we're hoping to. Um, including eventually the Battlefield Protection Program alongside places like Lexington and Concord, Bunker Hill, and, and uh, Yorktown. So. Well, whatever you do as you continue on, I hope you're going to keep in mind the New England Quarterly. 
been a delight working with you, and I think this is an extraordinarily important article. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure uh, working uh, with you and Linda Rhodes, and it's, uh, it's, it's been a great experience all in all. I hope people enjoy the article. They will indeed. For more information about this article, the New England Quarterly, or any of our publications, please visit our website at www.mitpressjournals.org. Thank you.